Before we start the podcast, uh, I just want to uh, point out that while we were having this conversation, uh, Jeff and I, uh, Jeff is working on a project in his backyard, so you'll hear uh, birds, you'll hear some traffic going by, uh, you'll hear him working on the project. Uh, it doesn't really get in the way of anything. I just want you to know that uh, you know it's not... It's nothing on your end. It's nothing, uh, you know, wrong uh, with the audio. Uh, there's just a little bit more background noise than normal. Thanks for joining for this week's episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Jeff Mann. Uh, he is uh, currently a senior information security consultant at uh, Online Business Systems, uh, but he and I uh, formally worked together uh, briefly at Tenable, uh, and uh, he is uh, well-known throughout the information security uh, you know, world. Uh, he is a co-host on Paul Security Weekly. Uh, he was uh, one of the contributing authors in the, the book Tribe of Hackers that was just recently published, uh, and he's a frequent speaker at uh, various events and I think has been making the uh, B-Sides uh, tour recently. Uh, so uh, welcome, Jeff. Hey, thanks, Tony. Glad uh, I can join you today. Um, well, let let me start with. Um, I, I actually I was initially I was going to start with kind of just talking about RSA. I mean, we just came back from RSA, and you know, <laughs> so I'm sure there's some things we can talk about about the the good, the bad, the indifferent. Um, sure. But I actually want to go start way further back. Uh, okay. Because your your you know the beginning of your your career in information security was uh, you know the, your your ten years uh, working inside the NSA. So you know I, I'm I'm sure there are things we we can't talk about, but uh, let's talk about what what kind of foundation did that give you for information security, or what kind of you know like how how did that kind of I guess, you know, provide you an education and make this be something you want to do with the rest of your life. Sure, we can start there. Um, yeah, I like to credit my beginnings uh, in InfoSec when I when I think about some of the, the skills that I've learned uh, that, that as I look back on it, uh, I think to myself, oh, that was kind of a hacker skill. So I actually, I actually traced my beginnings back to a, a uh, part-time job I had in college, which was working for a state agency. I guess I'll, I'll leave out the, the name of the state. Uh, but I was working for an organization that was trying to help people uh, avoid defaulting on their student loans for a particular state. And 
what I would do um, back in those days was get on the phone, uh, and that was a phone that was actually, uh, you know, on a desk with push buttons that had a coil between the the, the handset that you put up to your ear and your mouth, and uh, I was a lot. I was calling people, uh, trying to convince them to, uh, you know, pay on their def- you know soon to be defaulted their delinquent student loans. Uh, I was working on a uh, terminal that was connected to a mainframe, and I had access to records of all the uh, people in the system. And I was given a list at the beginning of my um, uh, of my uh, my shift, and I was supposed to work through the the the, the list. And and the, what I learned was, and of course, this is uh, probably hard to to figure for some people in today's. Uh, technology world of so much information is on our fingertips whether we want it to be or not by googling it Um, but i had access to uh, what we used to call the phone book which was a listing of you know names and phone numbers for landlines Uh, there was also uh, we had access to special things like we had access to a list of phone numbers of houses that were up and down the street you know we had an address associated with the phone number and then we sometimes could call next door neighbors and and try to coerce them into going next door to uh you know try to get them to uh get the people to come to the phone or leave a message well (laughs) and looking back on it and this is why i credit it was i was i was learning you know sort of uh, social engineering skills we were we were uh more or less allowed to lie and there was parameters with what we could say and of course we were um you know we weren't really technically supposed to lie but we could take some liberality so you know this was defaulted student loans so you know you know let's say john smith went to state university and i could call a neighbor and say hey i'm so and so i'm i'm trying to track down my old buddy john smith uh that I that I knew from State University. Do you do you happen to know if he's still living next door? Have you seen him around? Is that his parents' house? And I could pull all sorts of information out from people. Um, but you know, so that goes back to like 1982 is when I first started that job. So I I sort of credit the beginnings looking back on it. But that's not what you wanted to hear about. You want to hear about the NSA days. Um, so. I began my my tenure at NSA in 1986, and and I tell stories about this uh, when I give various talks, just because you know people like to hear war stories from the past and anything NSA related, people love to hear about because there's so much uh, conspiracy theory and NSA's in the news so much for so many different things. Um, but when I began at NSA, uh, I was hired along with about 100 people, and they were hiring about 100 people a week. This was in the height of the Cold War, which is what we used to call uh, what we were doing when our enemy was the Soviet Union. And uh, so I was brought on, and I actually didn't have a job when I uh, hired on with NSA. I had gone to NSA months before and taken a a battery of aptitude tests all sorts of different types of tests to see if i had the right skill sets and the right aptitude for doing any number of jobs and i scored well enough on the tests that they just hired me so my first uh, couple months on the job 
while I was waiting to get my uh, background investigation completed so I could get top secret clearance was basically to go on a bunch of job interviews. And where I ended up was uh, on what at the time was called uh, the Information Security Organization, uh, which was, uh, you know, I hate using sports analogies, but basically NSA at the time was there was an offense, there was a defense. Most people know NSA for the offense, you know, listening and intercepting communications from the rest of the world, all of our enemies and whatnot. But the information security side was the defense. That's That was the organization that at the time was producing all the cryptographic equipment, all the codes. All In those days, it was primarily radios, uh, but encrypted radios. Uh, and, and all that was produced for our primary customer, which was... You know, the various branches of the military, the armed forces, the State Department, uh, embassies, uh, you know, the government, any, anybody that was dealing in classified information had to get their crypto uh, from NSA. Uh, it, it was a monopoly. Um, so the first, the first tour that I had at NSA the first couple of years was working in what was called the manual crypto system shop, which was paper. Uh, it had been neglected for many years because there was uh, uh, a feeling in the 70s and early 80s that with the advent of computers and computer processing and printers, the paper would just kind of go away. Turns out it kind of proliferated. But nobody had looked at any of the, the paper systems and codes and ciphers that we were using for some time. So they wanted to have a cryptanalyst that would sort of do a technical review of all the different systems that were out there. And they couldn't find anybody to do it on a full-time basis because the full-time cryptographers were over on the op side of the house doing the real world mission. Um, so they decided, you know, if we can't uh, find one, we'll just grow one. So they hired me and, and they started my training as a cryptologist. Um, it, it, it turned out to be a very opportune time to be coming to the agency because, again, with uh, computers becoming more uh, common in the workplace, you know, I, I, I had an IBM, I think it was just a, a PC or an XT as my first computer when I went to work at the agency. It was standalone. Uh, it was just DOS. It didn't have Windows on it. Windows wasn't a thing yet. Um, and it was primarily used for word processing, what we used to call typing documents. Um, but uh, one of my very first assignments was I had a customer come to me and say, we're using this thing called a one-time pad. You know, and a one-time pad is where there's uh, uh, two pads that have the same amount of random key written out character at a time, you know, certain number per page with space in between. And you would write out your message one character at a time on top or below what is essentially the key that was written on the one-time pad and do some sort of algorithm to take the key and what was considered plain text and produce a cipher. And it was the type of thing where there was a unique relationship between those three characters that could be reversed. Any two characters would produce the same third character. So that on the receiving end, you sent the cipher over and the, and the person receiving it could write down character by character on the corresponding page of their copy of the one-time pad run the same algorithm, which was, you know, just something they did in their head, or they had a, a little cheat sheets or 
cables or whatnot, and they could do the decryption and get back the message. So I had a customer come to me and say, you know, we're working with people that are in the field. Uh, and you can imagine people in the field were uh, spies, agents, people that were collecting information from an adversary. And they said, you know, we're, we're, t we're getting these messages and it takes us hours and hours to decrypt them doing it by hand. But we've got this PC sitting on their on our desk. Is there any way we could use that? And I thought, well, yeah, sure, we could do that. Um, so I set off in an engineering organization that built little black boxes, uh, to, you know, that were essentially the crypto machines, the crypto systems. And I, I set out to uh, figure out a way to uh, first take the algorithm and turn it into a computer program. That was kind of easy because it was a very simple algorithm. Uh, and then we had to figure out how to get uh, the one-time pad, which was paper, take a copy of the key and put it on a floppy disk. And in this case, it was three and a half inch floppies. Um, and in doing that, we had to replicate the way that a one-time pad was used, which is when you use a page, whether you fill it up or not, you're supposed to destroy it. And literally, the people that were using it in the field, it was printed on rice paper, and they would eat it, or they would burn it, or whatever. They didn't have to eat it, but very often they would. Um, but, you know, so we had to come up with a way to, you know, put... 50 or 60 pages, however many pages were on a pad on a floppy, and and then figure out a way how to delete it a page at a time. And I was following uh, what was more or less, uh, you can't call it a software development life cycle, it was a hardware development life cycle. There were standards that I had to follow that were written specifically for hardware and little black boxes. I had a chief scientist say at one point, uh, you know, there's really no such thing as software. All we deal with is hardware around here. So I had to basically sort of rewrite the standards uh, for software, and 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 I had to go through an approval process with the senior management of the entire InfoSec organization. You know, several months into the job, and. You know, to make a long story short, we were able to produce this program that was used on an IBM PC. We were able to produce floppy disks that were uh, accompanying a paper pad that would be distributed to the field. I went through the approval process. We went through a security evaluation, responded to all the issues and concerns, and begrudgingly at the end of the day, senior management said, well, you, you met all the criteria that we said that you needed to, to meet, so I guess we'll let you do this. And... But don't do it again. And to, to the best of my knowledge, uh, 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 as far as I can tell, and, I, and I, I'm friends with several people, quite a few people that you know are still at NSA or used to work for NSA that, that dealt with the same type of organizations in terms of uh, you know, producing systems, producing key. That was like a whole separate organization that would produce the key wherever it would end up. As near as I can tell, that was the first software-based encryption system that NSA ever produced. Uh, so I have that little feather in my cap. And I remember at the time thinking, this is the coolest thing I'm going to do in my entire career, which pretty much is borne out, although I've done a lot of cool things since then. But that was the early stages. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and again, you know, looking back on it now, you know, sort of not taking no for an answer, uh, being, you know, trying to rewrite the rules. You know, if you're a Star Trek fan, I kind of pulled a Kobayashi Maru. 
uh, which you know, which you know, kind of proud of in a little ways. But you know, yeah. that was the first that was the first stint at, at NSA. The second stint was to formalize. I basically entered an intern program so I could complete my training to become certified as a cryptanalyst, which I did. My last tour as an intern was in a shop that was called Fielded Systems Evaluations, and what that meant was. Uh, you know, what NSA did on the offensive side uh, in terms of uh, intercepting messages and reading, you know, encrypted, private, coded communications from our adversaries, very often we were able to do that because uh, the systems that our adversaries were using were not used properly. Um, people that were using these systems would find bypasses, workarounds, uh, things like a one-time pad, which is unbreakable if you use it correctly but they would you know in order to save paper they would use the same page maybe for a week or a month rather than just use it the one time uh in doing that you make it vulnerable to compromise vulnerable to attack so you know not changing default settings not changing the keys as often as possible things like that were, are things that were routinely done on the operations side somebody decided how do we know that our people you know, our, our customers, the military and so on and so forth, aren't doing the same type of thing. So this organization, Fielded Systems Evaluations, would go out into the field, quite literally, and observe how our systems, which were the best in the world, cryptographically sound for, you know, dec decades, if not hundreds of years. Um, you know, we would, we, would, we would evaluate and make sure that they weren't being... Uh, abused or neglected in some way that made them vulnerable to the information being compromised. Part of that group was looking at something that was fairly new at the time, which was uh, what we just simply called network systems. Um, and along, you know, shortly after I went to that office, there was a, a seminal event in our history, which was the release of Mojang, uh, you know, the first sort of public free internet uh, web browser. And, and, you know, that just launched the, the whole thing that we now know today as cybersecurity, using the internet for communications and a background. So I, I literally got into this on the ground floor and I gravitated to the, the, the network systems branch of this division that was doing field and systems evaluations. And I ended up with a bunch of guys that were kind of you know, we were geeks in our own way, and we were kind of interested in computers and this whole new thing called the Internet and, and what we could do there. And we started to learn how to hack. And so we, we became a, a group of hackers um, or what nowadays would be called a red team, but we didn't call ourselves that at the time. And uh, in fact, I give a talk. I'll be giving a talk this weekend, sort of telling this story at length at B sides Rochester to give them a plug. Of course, this will probably air after it all happens. But um, uh, you know, the talk I give is basically telling the story of how red teaming started at NSA, which was a, a small group of guys uh, that I that I worked with in this organization. Which you know, we had to figure out what tools there were to use, and there weren't that many tools back then. Uh, a lot of it was just learning. Uh, everything was pretty much Unix back then, so it was learning Unix operating system features and, and uh, you know, sort of hidden 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 things within uh, the functionality of a lot of different things in Unix and learning how to uh, uh, 
abuse or take advantage of, of Unix system settings. Yeah, and, and things that are still common today, unfortunately, like right, uh, right. easily guessed passwords or shared passwords. Or back in those days, everybody would be issued a Unix account, and a lot of people were reticent to get on that 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 computer thing because they had their own way of doing stuff. So very often, and, and this not so much in the DoD days, but shortly after when I got out into the commercial world, you would go to a company where, you know, they might have 500 employees and they issued 500 accounts, but two or 300 people had never logged onto the system. And so they were sitting out there with some sort of default, you know, initial password, like password. And if you, all you had to do was find an unused account. And of course, in those days you were going in over modems, uh, over Telnet, and it was you know, very often, very easy to just find it, an unused account, guess the password, change the password, and all of a sudden it was your account and you were in. Um, but that all started at NSA. Uh, I started uh, in that office in 93. So, you know, 25, 26 years ago is, is when what now is known as red teaming uh, kind of got started at NSA. Um to, to round that out, uh, there was a lot of uh, reticence from management, shall we say, to do this mysterious hacker thing. It was something that you know was very mysterious to a lot of people and sort of ran against the grain of uh, you know it wasn't it, it was new, it was different, and and it was it was somewhat nebulous, and so there was a lot of mystery around it, around it, and so there was a lot of politics that had to be worked through, and there was a of course, also a lot of bureaucracy that had to be worked through. And at the end of the day, the majority of us uh, saw greener pastures going out into the private sector, and that's what a lot of us did. A couple of the original uh, of the original group is still at NSA, uh, but uh, the majority of us are are out in the public sector. Uh, the one person that I'm allowed to identify as being part of this this group that was that came to be known as the Pit. Uh, uh, the other the, the other person that uh, uh, that I can publicly say was part of it is is actually Ron Gula, the founder of uh, Tenable. Very cool. Um, which which so I actually have two things, and I was I was actually going to get to Ron. Um, sure. But but I want to start with uh, kind of jumping back. Uh, it was interesting listening to you talk about kind of the the, the early days, uh, your your early days at NSA because mm-hmm. it. It was roughly the same time. I was a little, a couple years after, but I, I, uh, I went to basic training for the Air Force in December of '88, and then I okay. spent uh, a good portion of '89 in uh, at uh, Lowry Air Force Base in Denver doing uh, tech school, mm-hmm. uh, and then I went to RAF Upper Hayford in England, mm-hmm. um, and I was working on ALQ 131 Block 2 electronic countermeasure pods. And we were, you know, we were, we were in a hardened shelter, right. part, partially underground, hardened right. shelter, uh, off the runway. And when I, I think when I first started there, they did not have PCs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was like a big deal when they like issued a PC for the, for the, um, you know, for our shop. And it was funny because I, I, I had been using computers since, you know, 81 82 commodore 64 you know I, I grew up on computers and and i had i had a you know tandy 1000 sl whatever in my in my dorm um and so they bring in this computer and it's basically just a black like ibm xt right except that it's 
quote unquote hardened. So like right. they've they've got a like reinforced, you know, so like no RF signals can get out of it. Like there was a door that you had to lock that covered up the uh, the floppy drive. Yep. So you, you, you yep. had to lock that door because and, you know, they, they were they were, you know, even then they were sure that somebody, you know, could somehow listen to the hard drive or listen to the disk drive and decipher information. Right. Uh, and so I just thought that was fun. And, and, and I could be misremembering this or it might be one of those like sort of fishtail sort of things that kind of grows in my head over time. But I swear that they paid like $50,000 for this PC. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me. And of course, back then, the, the, the biggest problem with PCs initially was the monitors, which were CRTs, cathode ray tubes. And, you know, cause they were basically projecting the image that you would, you know, from the back, you know, if you remember them, they were like, you know, yeah. foot and a half deep and they were actually projecting the image on the screen that you would see, but it also kept going. And sometimes it would go, you know, 50, you know, I probably can't say how far it went. That might be still classified. But uh, needless to say that, uh, uh, you know, intercepting that image uh, was a thing. And, uh, you know, I worked in buildings at NSA rather than, uh, you know, protecting each individual office with what, with what was called Tempest protection, which was basically yeah. copper shielding. You know, at some point in the, I think they were built in the 80s. I'm not sure exactly when they opened, but the, if you've ever seen an aerial view of uh, NSA, you see these two black, ominous square buildings. One's a little bit taller than the other. They're they're actually the buildings themselves are shielded in copper, so that these emanation emanations for all the from all the computers that were on the inside wouldn't leak outside of the building. So you can imagine that if they were concerned about it leaking out of the building, that it would go somewhat further out into the parking lot and into the surrounding neighborhood. Yeah, well, and so it's funny. So, so first of all, I, I worked, uh, most of the time I was there, I worked the uh, uh, midnight shift, you know, so I was there like, you know, midnight mm -hmm. to 7 a.m. And, you know, so, you know, we, we did occasionally use the PC for official business, but um, I installed Tetris and uh, the Lynx, yep. uh, Lynx golf game. And we would spend, oh, yes. uh, we would spend our whole shift playing golf. Right. And then there was uh, one day we got word that uh, uh, the like base IG was doing a sweep and going around making sure all these things were you know secure and nobody was screwing around with them and I had to like race to like erase <laughs> all of my footprints off of this off of this PC. Right. Um, you know, and they also like we had a we had a um, like a CD player and like a you know, a, you know music system for you know, listening mm -hmm. to music while we were at work. Yep. And you know everyone would bring in their CDs and we'd play them and stuff. And then uh, it was, I don't know, a few months after we got the PC uh, that, that they took away our sound system. And we're like, well, what the hell? <laughs> and they said, well, somebody said that the speakers can actually also work in reverse as a sort of microphone and that potentially somebody who was like outside the building might be able to like intercept signals, you know, through being like somehow reverse transmitted through the speakers. The whole thing sounded very, you know, far-fetched as far as I was concerned, not only from the, just the pure physics and science of it, but also because I was like, we're in a hardened shelter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, you can't, you like, I think if you if, if if there's a Russian agent in the parking lot intercepting signals, that's your first problem, <laughs> because right, right. we're on an air force base in a hard shelter, 
you know, next to the runway. So, I mean, like, it seemed like very, very little, uh, you know, over the top uh, in terms of their security. I don't think anyone was going to, like, get any classified information listening to our speakers. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. And, and I guess one of the lessons that I learned from NSA days, and, and I had a couple years working for the Navy before I went to NSA, so it was all, you know, working in a classified realm. Uh, one of the things looking back that I learned was that security, this thing that we call security, whether it's information security or cybersecurity, most of what we know about how to uh, protect ourselves uh, has essentially been a trial and error thing. You know, we, you know, we figure out something's, uh, you know, vulnerable, we fix it. We figure out there's a way to pick up data in a certain manner, you know, whether it's, you know, intercepting from speakers or whether it's, uh, um, you know, picking up the vibrations of sound waves off the panes of glass on a window, or whether it's the the cathode ray tube, the monitors, you know, bleeding or emanating the signals for you know line of sight way beyond, you know, way beyond the office that they're in. You know, whatever it is, you know, we we, we tend to have figured out a lot of this stuff after it's already out there, um, and. What I find interesting is uh, that, you know, we started doing this thing called penetration testing or red teaming in, you know, roughly the 92, 93 range. But when you, you know, if you go to like movie trivia or hacker trivia things and they start talking about classic hacker movies, War Games usually comes up. War Games came out in 1983, you know, a full 10 years before we started doing it at NSA. I will caveat that with, I'm talking about the InfoSec side, the red teaming side. I can't speak for what might have been being done on the operations side, you know, from a mission perspective in terms of, you know, hacking, you know, wouldn't technically be penetration testing, it would be actually breaking into things. Uh, that's a different subject. But from a defensive perspective, from a red teaming perspective, you know, 10 years after movies like war games or sneakers came out is when nsa started getting serious about that kind of stuff so it it took us a while we there used to be a t-shirt uh back in the day and it was like this ominous you can probably google it and find it it was this ominous eyeball and then it said nsa and then it said 1984 and then it said we're behind schedule <laughs> okay, so let's let's then talk. Then uh, you, you mentioned Ron, uh, and, you know, and yep. I, I I know Ron as well. Like I said, we we both worked at Tenable, and, and I actually knew Ron uh, before I started working at Tenable as well. Yep. Um, and so you know, I know you, I know Ron. I won't name name names, but I know a few other people who, in a former lifetime, uh, worked in some capacity, uh, you know, with the NSA. Mm-hmm. Um. And so here's here's what's interesting to me. Like you know, so there's there's the myth of the NSA, and right. and, and or at least the, you know, like I have no idea if it's a myth or not. There there's the public perception of the myth of NSA as being just the uber hackers who can crack into everything. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, nothing is safe from the NSA. And to the extent that that may be true, I I, I look at you know you and Ron and, and other people in information security who were formerly in the NSA, and I think. Well, having been there, done that, you know, wouldn't you come out of that kind of jaded, like, well, what's the point? 
but <laughs> like we can't we can't actually protect this shit. Uh, you know, and you know, so so there's that. But then, but then you know, you are here, and Ron, you know, did found Tenable and is out there doing you know cybersecurity stuff still. So, you know, I guess the flip side of that is, you know, maybe it, maybe it's just it's not so much like it it makes you cynical that there's no hope, but it gives you a little bit of insight into being realistic about what can be done and and how to accomplish it so like what are your thoughts on that so it's interesting that you frame it like that and i guess first i'll caveat my comments with what makes you think i'm not jaded um (laughs) uh you know i i am along with a few others like jack daniel uh um Wendy Nathers, one, you know, we're, we're members of a, a very uh, a small, I don't want to say elite group because none of us certainly consider ourselves to be elite, but we're, uh, you know, we're, we're this group that we call the cabal of the curmudgeons, you know, so basically people that have been in the business forever and that are, for the most part, pretty pessimistic and jaded, but we haven't given up hope yet and we're reasonably nice people to be around. Um, so, um, one of the other talks that I, that I've given sort of the, the last year or two, and I, I've, I've, I've changed it up a little bit, but I'll be giving it a couple times this year is, you know, my, my jadedness is not so much jadedness and pessimism as it is frustration that, uh, you know, however long you want to say that this thing we've been doing is you know 25 30 years whatever number you want to put on it um you know why we're still struggling so many organizations let's say commercial organizations uh with with sort of the basics fundamental everybody should know to do this security 101 types of sort of practices um why we haven't fixed that yet uh, is is frustrating, and uh, uh, you know we both work attainable within marketing. I won't speak to them specifically, but in general, you know, having just been at RSA, hearing all the pitches and you know marketing and sales messages from the 750 plus companies that were exhibiting there, uh, you know, everybody's picked up on you know a lot of these fundamental problems that everybody seems to know about and they don't ever seem to go away and but everybody's got a solution everybody's got you know we'll just use our thing and and then you'll be okay um and i i've been hearing that for so long that yeah jaded is probably a good word i'm very dismissive of it and what i keep thinking of going back to what you were saying about uh you know, lessons I've learned from my, you know, long career and starting within the DOD, within InfoSec, is um, I, I somehow think that we've, we, we, and I'm guilty of this too, because I, I helped to promulgate this, but those of us that knew how to do security right, which, you know, generally speaking was the military, the DOD throughout history, uh, throughout our nation's history anyway, um, we, we we largely came out into the into the private sector and you know started companies went to work for companies uh, you know we had the experience the expertise uh, the pedigree if you will and and we took our message of, of security and how to do security right into the commercial world the private sector and largely 
when I used to, you know, 20 some, 22, 23 years ago, when I first started coming out into the commercial world and started talking to, and I came out as a consultant uh, and originally was doing vul- what we called vulnerability assessments. We didn't call them pen tests as much back then. But, you know, the whole basic, let, let us break into your network and tell you what all the problems are, and then we'll teach you how to do security. We were always, from the very beginning, talking about, uh, and this is common knowledge to a lot of people, you know, that the security is about people and processes and then about technology that you have to, you know, sort of understand how to do security. You need to have policies, you need to have procedures, you need to have buy-in, uh, you, you know, all sorts of things like that. And largely, collectively, I think the public said, yeah, 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 that sounds interesting, but just tell me what I need to buy and where to put it. And so for the last 25 or 30 years, we've gone through these cycles of, you know, at the very beginning, you're going to plug into the Internet, you need a firewall. And so everybody would go out and buy a firewall. Well, you you also need to know what all your vulnerabilities are. So you need a vulnerability scanner, you know, enter enter Tenable and Nessus, you know, a few others, obviously. Um, you know, well, you found all your vulnerabilities, but you can't close them all. So you need to have ways to detect them. You need to have ways to detect the threats. You need to have intrusion detection. You need to have this, that, and it's go, it's gone on and on and on and on. And I keep thinking in a talk that I've given the last couple of years ago, in the last couple of years is entitled, does DOD level security work in the real world? And, uh, the question I asked within this talk is simply, you know, why have we never, and I'm generalizing, of course, to some degree, there are companies that do it right. But, you know, for the most part, why, why do so many companies and commercial organizations, uh, never seem to grasp the whole total message of security? Why do we keep repeating the same mistakes of buying the latest silver bullet solution and thinking we're done? And I think part of that is a mentality, and I'm not sure where it came from, uh, but I want to dispel this myth, if you will, that technology, security technology, is going to solve your problem. That's the first part. Or uh, that security, as far as your organization goes, is largely somebody else's problem. IT covers it, or the information security group, or the CISO office, or you know, whatever whatever the body is within the organization. Well, they've got it covered. Security is something that somebody else does in the organization. I just do my job. And and you know, one of the lessons I learned that I talk about in this in this DoD does DoD level security work in the real world is. I think back to my first days, you know, working for the Navy, working for a naval research organization, where uh, everybody in the organization understood the importance of security, understood the rules, understood what they could and couldn't do, and should and shouldn't do, and they followed the rules, and they would report people if they observed people not following the rules, and it was more or less a culture of security. Right. And, you know, it's easy to dismiss that, I think, because, you know, in the DOD, the, you know, what's at risk, if you think of like a basic risk equation within the DOD is, you know, our is basically human life, whether it's our military and their ability to wage war. 
uh, you know, our, our people abroad, State Department, uh, diplomats and things like that, our own government, you know, it, it all kind of boils down to human life. And it's almost, you know, the budgets were always pretty free flowing back in those days and so on and so forth. So it was kind of, a, you know, money was no object. It, you know, wasn't a, it wasn't uh, uh, anything that held people back. But beyond that, everybody knew and understood security. And and that, I think, more than anything else, has never translated well into, this, in, into the commercial world, where the risk ultimately, I would argue, boils down to one of two things. It's the, it's the, the risk of a, a, a company or an organization to be able to engage in commerce and, and make money, make profit, or dovetailing off of that, it's how much it costs them uh, to engage in commerce and conduct business. You know, whether it's just the regular cost of doing business, but you know, add on that the layers of security that they necessarily need to buy. And and you know, I'm not saying throw out all the technology because a lot of it's necessary these days. Um, but you know, knowing what you're buying, know the, knowing the limitations, knowing that it doesn't solve all your problems, knowing that you still have a responsibility, and that responsibility extends to every employee, and they need to know it. Uh, so I've been thinking lately about you know silly little catchphrases like uh, we don't need more security technology; we need secure technology. Um, yeah. Or, or we don't need security awareness training; we need security training. Well, so it, it, so the, this is a good uh, kind of segue to kind of pull us into, uh, and we can kind of, as we wrap towards the end here, talk a little bit about RSA. But um, yeah, I, I was just reading an article earlier today uh, in the Cyber Scoop. Uh, it was an interview with uh, Amit Yuran, uh, who's you know the current CEO of Tenable. Yep. Um, and 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 the whole thing is basically like you know he's basically slamming the security industry and saying it, you know, everything is based on, you know, fear mongering and selling, selling based on fear mongering. But, you know, the reality is, you know, most companies aren't doing even the basics. And it, and for me, it, it kind of reminds me of a couple of things. Number one, when I was working as a security architect and, cons- and security consultant, I remember going into companies and having, you know, someone just say, you know, well, you know, we want to, you know, we want to buy this, you know, we, you know, we've got a firewall, we've got, uh, you know, antivirus, we, we want to buy this intrusion detection. And, and, and it was like, the first, uh, the first reaction was, what product can we buy? And how much money can we spend? And I would come in and say, well, why don't we look at what you've actually already got? Mm-hmm. Make sure that you've make sure that you're doing kind of the fundamentals and make sure that you're actually using the security controls that are already available to you and then figure out how to cover the gaps. I mean, this isn't, it's not, you know, like why, why just go spend more money? And it's a little bit like diet and exercise. Like everyone knows eat eat right and exercise is like the only actual solution. (laughs) And yet there's billions of dollars being spent every year on the latest pill, the latest shoes, the latest, you know, whatever, you know, is like exercise equipment, gym memberships. And I mean, obviously I guess gym membership is fine as long as you use it. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter whether you're doing, uh, you know, P90X or you're going to do kickboxing or whatever you're going to do, the, the, the fundamentals are still the same, which are eat right and exercise. Right. And, you know, that same thing translates with information security. It's like the fundamentals are, are the same. And if you got the, fen- if, if you understood and got the fundamentals right, 
in a Pareto principle sort of way, you'd eliminate 80% of your, your risk right there. Right. Um, I, I agree with you. Uh, it, it, it's funny that you're reading, you know, quotes from that from Amit. You know, he said something similar, I think, is it when he was still at RSA a couple years ago. I want to say it was a closing keynote that he did. Um, you know, it, and while I, I, I don't want to imply that he was being disingenuous, but, you know, he's also the head of an organization that's valued at I don't know how many billions right now that, that has made its money and made its living off of um, sort of perpetuating the FUD, if you will. Uh, and again, not picking on any one company in particular, but uh, picking on the whole notion of uh, finding vulnerabilities seems to be like 80, 90 percent of this industry. Um, I think it was Tenable. I, I was reading in another report. I think it came from Tenable. It might have been on their blog site. And I'm not going to remember the exact number, but they released some report that said something like in... 2018, there was 26 or 28,000 vulnerabilities uh, discovered, you know, throughout the land. And I'm like, who's got time for all that? I mean, really, realistically, who's got time for all that? Maybe, just maybe, and this is sort of the crux of this other talk that I'll be give, giving a couple times this year, which is simply entitled, What Are We Doing Here? Uh, and the subtitle is Rethinking Security. But but uh, as a teaser, if anybody's going to be at the conferences where I'm speaking, what, what I want to suggest is when I look back on the basic risk equation that I learned when I was at NSA, where risk is a function of several variables, one being vulnerabilities, one being threats, and the third one being what we called at the time countermeasures. So, you know, technically the risk equation I learned learned didn't even have the word security in it but for the sake of argument let's say countermeasures is is synonymous with security um if you look at that equation and that equation we we that started in the dod and brought out in various ways into the private sector and it, it's sort of this whole industry is built around it because you certainly hear about people talking about risks and threats and vulnerabilities all the time but as an aside if, if you hear somebody talking about those terms, stop them and ask them what they mean and, and, and see what they say, because very often they will fumble with a definition. Um, and the ultimate kicker is ask somebody what security means sometime. I'm not going to ask you right now because I want to make another point. But uh, if you look at that equation, uh, most of this industry has grown up over the last 25 years in, in some way, shape, or form around vulnerabilities, discovering them, remediating them, patching them, uh, detecting them early, uh, you know, using them for exploitation, using them for pen testing, dropping O-days, you know, always the, the popular uh, topic for, for talks at the most coveted hacker conferences and so on and so forth. My conjecture is, uh, you know, that's an equation and there's other variables in it. What about threats? What about countermeasures? Uh, and, and maybe, and I don't have a mathematical term for this because I'm not a mathematician, but maybe that thing that we consider as a variable in this equation, vulnerabilities, it's, I think most of us would agree they're here to stay. Uh, so what if we treat that as a constant and look at something else? Well, threats are, and the way I learned threats are, they're people, they're the enemy, they're the ones that are trying to do bad things to you. Unfortunately, our industry sort of calls what I would call attacks threats. 
but again, that's sort of another tangent. Uh, but let's just say threats are out there. There's, you know, assume that somebody's out there that's a bad guy that wants to do bad things to you, steal your money, steal your secrets, whatever. Um, so that's more or less a constant. Um, and then you got this third variable, which is countermeasures or security. If that is a unique variable in an equation that we label security, then I would suggest to you that vulnerabilities and all the things we do about vulnerabilities isn't security at all. And if it's not security at all, what is it? My suggestion it is, and all the things that are wrapped around we think of in terms of vulnerabilities, in terms of, you know, we need people to write secure code that don't have vulnerabilities. We need to discover the vulnerabilities, whether it's in-house, in, in QA or bug bounties or whatever. What if all that isn't really security at all? Security at all? What if that's just your job? You know, you're a developer, write secure code. You're a, you're an evaluator. You're an assessor. You're a, a security researcher. That's just your job. You're, you're finding those things. What is it then? If it's not vulnerability related and it's not threat related, what is left that we could effectively call or should call security in the context of an overall risk equation? And we don't have to answer it right now. That's my teaser for uh, coming to hear my talk. And it's really intended at the end of the day just to be a discussion starter because I'm not sure I have an answer, but the older I get, the more questions I have. Fair enough. So, you know, so, so now let's uh, kind of pull it back to RSA, uh, and, okay. and 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 then uh, that that also gets gets me back to uh, uh, talking about being jaded and, and being a curmudgeon. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so you you know you're just there. There's you know whatever 750 vendors. Yep. Uh, you know you 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 walk the expo floor. They've all got their pitches. Um, you know, let's say you know you're just an IT manager from a mid-sized company trying to, you know, figure out what you're supposed to do. Like, what what is your takeaway from from RSA in general? Like, is there any value in it for someone who's actually trying to understand security? Well, uh, yeah. Without being too jaded, um, I you know I go to RSA. And I've been around a long time, and I, I honestly walk around and wonder how the person that you're describing, you know, a, a mid-level IT manager, I, I really wonder how they make any heads or tails of any of it, quite frankly. Um, and yet, everybody has to go. It, it's almost like I was, I was talking with people when I was out there. I don't know if it's a, if it's the best analogy or not, but it, it's almost like in the entertainment industry going to the Cannes Film Festival. You know, you go to be seen as much as to see. It, you know, it's it's the must must attend event of the season, or maybe it's the Academy Awards. I don't know, but somehow all the vendors, and if you if you go to any of the booths, very often you know the marketing people, the people that have dropped how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on the booth are sitting there so depressed and shaking their head, why are we doing this every year? It's such a waste of money, you know, all the leads that we get, you know, and you and you see the people just, you know, practically tacking, tackling people walking up and down the aisle to get the leads. Um, you know, they're obviously not satisfied, but they can't convince anybody not to do it. Although, uh, 
and you know when we were tenable our our big competitor whether they knew it or not was qualis and you know that was the giant that we went after qualis did not have a booth this year and i thought that was fascinating or last year philippe has actually sort of uh, very vocally uh withdrawn now philippe is also well, doing his own he's he's doing his own right qualis so security they're still conference. there they're still there and and more and more companies are are, are you know they still show up because you know it's such a uh, a mass of people that show up in San Francisco, and everybody's looking for something to do out, out outside of the the mm-hmm. vendor area, Moscone Center. I didn't realize the Qualis was out last year. I, I missed that. I was too busy running around doing interviews last year to notice. But uh, yeah, more and more companies are doing independent things. I I had several meetings this year that were you know quote unquote offsite, but you know companies that had sort of set up shop at a nearby restaurant or tavern or, or establishment yeah. of some. You know who did that and, first from my perspective? I mean, uh, they, they may not have been first, but the, the, the most notable one to me was Barracuda. Okay. Uh, Barracuda stopped. They stopped having a booth and mm. they just rented out the Samovar gotcha. tea shop. And then they did all their briefings yep. Uh, yep. You know, out of there. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like uh, to me, it, it, it's, it, it is absolutely a must attend event, but I go there. You know, for the security bloggers meetup, I go there to meet with. I go there to meet with the vendors from a freelance content creation and marketing perspective, and to work with them and and to learn some things about not not necessarily learn some things about like security itself, but just to learn. Okay, well, what are they saying now? You know, so right. I can I can play off of that and 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 hopefully there are some innovative ideas too. But so I think it's a. I still think there's tremendous value for me being someone in the industry uh but i question the value for someone who's not in cybersecurity, who's trying to go there to learn like what products should they buy like that's the last place you should go yeah i i would tend to agree with that and i i can't speak for uh, the content of, of you know presentations and workshops and whatnot. I, 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 I attend very few and I've read articles that are sort of you know polar opposites on whether uh, you know they were valuable or not. Uh, the, the couple that I did attend, you know, because I knew I knew the speaker. I'd never heard him speak before, and I went to hear him talk. And I came away thinking, "Wow, that was really, really elementary." Uh, I expected more, but then I thought, "Well, but you know, they're tra- they're probably trying to speak to an audience of you know people that aren't you know thirty five year veterans that you know that have a certain amount of knowledge about things." Um, so you know, I try to temper my. Uh, impressions in that context uh, but again uh, there's probably better ways if I have a bias and I think I do have a bias uh, it's because I've done uh, in my commercial career which is going on 23 years I, I, I've done consulting and advisory work where I actually meet with customers and spend time with customers and hopefully help them to get more secure uh, at the end you know by the end of the engagement uh, I've done that for 20 years. My foray into vendor land, uh, which was tenable, was was only about three years. Um, so I have a I have much more of a bias towards uh, consultants and advisors that can go in and be vendor neutral, vendor independent, and and help companies figure out what they need to need to do to be secure, and then look at the technology that they need to buy, and hopefully make some intelligent 
you know, purchase decisions. Uh, they don't necessarily need the Cadillac solution, and that's an old reference. Nobody knows what a Cadillac is. They don't need the test. They don't need the Tesla solution. They might be able to get away with an Uber, um, but they don't. You know, but if you don't have somebody that's got the the security background, the institutional knowledge. Hot, go and find somebody as a trusted advisor. Uh, and and I, I talk to a lot of people that are vendors and consultants for vendors, and that's not what I'm talking about because at the end of the day, no matter how meaning, well-meaning they are and how genuine they are, there's still this built-in conflict of interest that at the end of the day they're selling something because they're working for a product company. Whereas a consultant, an advisor, an independent like I am and, and the company that I work for and sort of the culture that I come out of, we're vendor neutral. We're, we're gonna, we, we need to know who the vendors are. We need to know what they're all about. So that's a reason I go to RSA is to, is to learn who's doing what. But it's so that I can turn around to my customer and say, yeah, that's not really the company that you need to be talking to. You need to be talking to those guys over there in the corner that's got the smaller booth and busy passing out the, the you know, the Star Wars uh, lightsaber. But, you know, all, they, all they've got is a squishy ball, but they're doing something really cool that I think would be really helpful to you. That type of thing. Very cool. All right. Well, so uh, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, to talk with me. I think this was, uh, was, was very interesting. Um, I, I want to, you know, you, you, you mentioned uh, uh, B-Sides, was it Rochester? Yep, B-Sides, Rochester. Um, but as you also uh, mentioned, you know, I'm, I, if you're doing that this weekend. I won't mm -hmm. get this up until probably, you know, next week or whatever. So let's say two weeks out, uh, you know, where, where, where can people catch up with you or, you know, just like, you know, where do you want people like, where's the best way for someone to like, keep up with what you're doing, Twitter, LinkedIn, where should they follow you? Sure. Um, I'm trying to be more vocal on Twitter, but I don't always get the chance, but my Twitter handle is at Mr. Jeff man, J E F F M A N. Uh, besides Rochester this weekend, I will be at uh, InfoSec World in Orlando, and actually besides Orlando, in two weeks. Uh, not speaking, just kind of hanging out. Uh, let's see, I'll be at CypherCon, which is up in Milwaukee, and, and hanging around the next day for Hack for Kids, because I love teaching the next generation. You know, get them while they're young. Um, I'll be at Circle City Con. Um, where else am I talking? Uh, da -da 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 -da. That's all. Uh, that's all that's coming to mind for now. But uh, you know, I, I try to post out on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. You know, where I'll be speaking, on down the line. Excellent. And uh, yeah, I, I. Oh, and I should also say, and of course, tune into Security Weekly. I, I try to. Uh, I try to as as often as possible join join the fun on Security Weekly. All right, and I will uh, when I when I post this in the in the blog that goes with the uh, podcast post, I'll, I'll I'll add links to those things so that people can find them easier. Um, and I was going to say uh, I I'm not a hundred percent sure I'll be at Black Hat, and my I'm in the eighty percent range right now. But uh, right. you know, but uh, I, I I imagine you'll be there if and if I'm there, we can uh, you know grab a beer or something. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for letting me bend your ear for a bit. All right. Talk to you later. All right, thanks, John.
I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions that you'd like to see answered in future posts.